Well, hello there, friends and lovers. Welcome to this Fudson Film Podcast. My name is Scott Morris, and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale. Greetings. So it's our general August film roundup time, uh, but we've inadvertently hit upon a couple of themes, I suppose. We've got two superhero sequels, Ant-Man and the Wasp and uh, The Incredibles 2. We've also got two dramas with a religious bent to them, First Reformed and Apostasy, and we're rounding things out with the critically acclaimed colonial character study, Zama. So I suppose we'll start by crashing straight into Ant-Man and the Wasp. Drew, take that away. Take it away from me. I don't want to see it anymore. Ugh. Disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where I was going with that. that, That's entirely stymied to be (laughs) Scott. Well, let's just talk about the film instead. I think let's just just do that. Um, (laughs) The third and final of 2018's Marvel Cinematic Universe releases, Ant-Man and the Wasp, is, and this will shock you, a sequel to 2015's Ant-Man. I'm shocked. See, I told you. I know these things. A film which saw Thief Scott Lang, played by Paul Rudd, don Hank Pym's, Michael Douglas's high-tech suit and become Ant-Man. Since his participation in the scuffle at the airport in Captain America Civil War, please, Marvel, you have all of the money, buy a dictionary. <laughs> Lang has been under house arrest in San Francisco, hence his non-appearance in Avengers Infinity War. If you remember from the first film... At one point, Scott found himself shrunk to a subatomic size and in the Quantum Realm, a region from which it was thought there could be no return, and where Hank Pym's wife and Hope's Evangeline Lilly's mother Janet, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, was lost 30 years ago. Since then, Pym has been trying to build a quantum tunnel in order to go looking for her. Now, before you say that this seems impossible and or makes no sense, stop. Unlike <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> much worse is coming. Yes. Uh, unlike many other films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ant Man resolutely does not take itself seriously. <laughs> Unless that is, I somehow massively misinterpreted the giant ant taking a bubble bath thing. <laughs> so you know, just go with the flow. Hank and Hope enlist Scott's begrudging help. He doesn't want to risk his parole and the ability to be with his daughter to rescue Janet who put a radio into his brain in a dream or something. It's quantum entanglement. It was clearly explained, and that's exactly how quantum entanglement works. I think. Citation Uh, needed. uh, Look, like I said, just go with it, okay? It's a (laughs) lot easier. But uh, this is somewhat complicated by evil businessman Sonny Birch, Walton Goggins, who wants to get his hands on Pym's nifty tech, and further complicated by the mysterious ghost. Hannah John Kamen, who wants to get her hand on Pym's nifty tech. Fisticuffs ensue. Like the first Ant-Man, the important thing to know is that Ant-Man and the Wasp is just a tremendous amount of fun. The main reason it is so successful is, of course, Paul Rudd, who is innately likeable and who can now be forgiven for the turd that was mute, (laughs) in which, really, he was woefully miscast. Yes. But returning support from Michael Peña though, if anything, he's underused, and Michael Douglas, who's always had a decent, dryly comic turn, helps as well. Walton Gawkins more or less pulls off goofy evil. It's like lawful evil, neutral evil, and goofy evil. That's how it works, right? (laughs) Yes. uh, uh, Dungeons & Dragons missed a trick there, really, didn't it? (laughs) Goofy evil with terrible toupee as well. (laughs) And perhaps the only failure in character is with Hannah John Kamen's ghost, a character who 
ought to be sympathetic and certainly deserves pity, but really does too good a job of being evil and unlikable. Fortunately though, and an improvement over the first film, this outing for the diminutive superhero doesn't feature a true villain and is all the better for it. It's more of a rescue mission than anything, and Birch and Ghost present obstacles rather than the main objective. Which is good since Marvel villains are pretty much all awful and boring. Put all of this together and you have a hugely entertaining, admittedly silly, or perhaps I should say it's welcome that it's silly, action film that neatly sidesteps the usual ennui that that accompanies the inevitable massive CGI smash fest climax with the same fun, inventive use of changing size and scale that worked so well three years ago. Best comic book film of the year. Yeah, um, very much a case of, do you remember Ant-Man? Do you want to see more of it? When, well, this is just the film for you. <laughs> um, it's even recycling the same jokes, uh, like Michael Pena's uh, narration of events. But it doesn't matter because it's a really good joke. <laughs> and yes. uh, I've not seen it in a few years, so it still lands quite well. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I think it does a great trick in, let's say, not having uh, galaxy-scale events. It's actually much easier to care about it when you're actually just talking about the lives of, well, two people, really, as it winds up being the balance between that. Far easier to get invested in in that and who's going to survive. And it's not entirely clear that either one would survive. So uh, it does does a much better job of actually getting you invested in it um, because it doesn't really do an awful lot of setup it goes straight into some really great action scenes i love the you know the, the size altering gimmick that's going on throughout it is played really well uh, it's also really funny in a number of occasions so i've absolutely no complaints about it at all actually no no wait i do have, i do have one complaint i enjoyed like 99.5 percent <laughs> of this film but at no point in this film did i think but how does this tie into the wider Marvel Cinematic Universe, TM? And in particular, <laughs> the events of the most ambitious crossover event in cinematic history, TM. The Avengers, TM. Infinity War, TM. So it was really annoying when you get that last uh, post-credit scene, which just... It, it, it's a, a really annoying downer on a film that is in no way set up to support that kind of punch at the end of it. And it's just completely pointless. You've had this really wacky really funny high action adventure just just let it go mm. don't try and tie everything together just have one nice film in isolation don't just don't just kick people on the way out the door saying oh oh and by the way everyone's dead <laughs> i mean i'm sure they'll all come back but it doesn't matter it's just annoying that at the end of this film which has been just really upbeat and entertaining all the way throughout they need to stick a downer note on the end that's completely pointless and it just reaffirms my notion that there is no single post-credit scene in the most films that is worth staying for just leave as soon as the credits start rolling it's absolutely pointless and very annoying Probably disproportionately annoying because of the, the location of it. If it hadn't been, if it wasn't sort of right at the end of a film, just taking it out of it as well. Not enough. I was really quite upset by that when it came out. It was just such a bad decision. It's it's trying to produce some sort of coherence with other films that really has no point being there other than to. I, I don't know. I mean, they decided that the cliffhanger at the end of Infinity War wasn't quite cliffhangery enough. <laughs> it's like oh, we know we've killed half the universe. We need to be half the universe plus these three guys. You know. Ugh annoying but other than that yeah loved it yeah that yeah that mid-credit scene because there actually there's a post-credit scene which is even more pointless yes um, yes that was even yeah you have to sit through 50 minutes of credits to get to oh it's an ant okay yes i'm just going to save you the trouble it's an ant playing drums yes (laughs) all you need to know 
because um, <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the rest of the story or anything at all. Yeah. I can understand why there's some explanation of what's going on because they've they've brought that character into the rest of the the events and that character was in Captain America's Civil War. I think mm. they covered it well enough though that like that was all it needed. It needed a little one line throwaway thing saying, Oh, you're under arrest, so you couldn't be doing all yeah, that stuff at the exactly. time. That was yeah. that was it. That was enough of a tie-in. That's all it explained everything it needed to do. It didn't need anything else, but no. Yeah. Had to do it, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. Because in if Infinity War, like there's like you have Bruce Banner saying, There's an Ant Man and a Spider Man now and like just <laughs> referencing that character and it's like then he's not there for whatever reason. And then in this film, you don't even need to explain it, you just work it out, well, yeah, okay, he's under he's got an ankle bracelet, he can't leave his house. Um, that's why it's not there. Okay, but it's that mid-credit scene. The tone is so different. Exactly, that's kind of what bothers me. It's more than yeah. it, it's not so much the need to tie into the cinematic universe, um, and they really didn't need to. But it's the the fact the tone is so so different from the film. Yeah, which yeah. has basically a man walking around with um a Hot Wheels, and I say it basically is actually walking around with a Hot Wheels <laughs> case full of toy cars that are actually real cars. Yeah. And then they have that scene at the end. It doesn't fit. And no. again, an ant, a giant ant taking a bubble bath. It doesn't match <laughs> with that mid-credit scene. And it's it's really annoying for that. But uh, you can also just leave the cinema or stop watching the film after the end of the film, not see that and you'll be fine. So, yes. Because the rest of it is so, so fun. Yes, definitely my recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> there are um, like some other references to what else has happened, but they're used for humour and it works really well. Like when Hope is making fun of, of Scott, for like, oh, is that what Cap says? Is that what the Cap would do? Um, because he's just like, he's like casually name-dropped Captain America and called him Cap. Because, uh, yeah, remember, in this universe, Captain America's a celebrity, really. Yeah. And so they, like, they have some fun with that. But that fits with the tone of the film so well. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, the the rest of it, not so much. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's not the rest of it, just, just that one bit, really. It's, it just seemed unnecessary. Yes, literally Especially my only complaint about it. Um, you, everyone else, it worked very well. But, yeah. yeah, when you'd worked out by that point. But I, know, I know this is happening at the same time, and I know why he could be there, okay? And I guess he's going to be in the next film. But, okay, it didn't really need to be set up. Uh, yeah. I don't know, I pity, but... Uh, the most minor of Marks Against a thoroughly entertaining film. Yes. I think if I had any other complaints, it may be that I think perhaps Evangeline Lilly is a little underserved on the humour side of things. But she gets some. But she gets to be more like a straight person than the, the straight role rather than the comic role, I guess, in a few yeah. setups. I guess in the same way that in Thor Ragnarok, the male characters are the sort of goofy butts of the joke and the women are the more competent ones I guess Ant-Man and the Wasp yeah. has that going for it as well but it would be nice to have given her maybe a few more comic moments but and that's a minor niggle so yeah it's, it's thoroughly thoroughly entertaining and it, you know, it's easy to get sort of wearied by what seems to be so many comic book films and really there's not because three in a year uh, the problem is perhaps that they they dominate the box office so much to the exclusion of other things. They take up so many mm. screens and so many so much time. That yeah. That's maybe why they become so other things don't get the releases they might. But it's nothing compared to the times 50 years ago, maybe 60 years ago or longer, when there were literally more than 100 Westerns made a year. Yeah. <laughs> compared to three comic book films, three or, four, or at least three Marvel ones, maybe another couple from DC or something... Um, 
or Fox. Mm. It doesn't seem that bad in the end. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, thoroughly recommend you. I had an absolute blast with this film. Good, good. So, takes us to another superhero film then. Another sequel, Incredibles 2 from Pixar. Do you remember the 14-year-old Incredibles? Would you like to see more of it? Then, boy, do I have just a film with you with Incredibles 2. Uh, we rejoined the Parr family, still committed to breaking the Slovakia Accords by using their superpowers for great justice, with Craig T. Nelson's Bob, Mr. Incredible, still causing as much damage as those he's trying to stop. As such, the government takes a dim view of their antics and shuts down the superhero relocation programme they're in, which turfs them out on the street, uh, or, well, a manky hotel, which is close enough, I suppose. Sucker is delivered when Samuel L. Jackson's Lucius Frozone Best informs Bob and Holly Hunter's Elastigirl Helen of a possible way back to public acclaim. Bob Odenkirk's superhero daft telecoms tycoon Winston Dever and his sister, Catherine Keener's Evelyn, are looking to rehabilitate the public perception of supers through a managed PR campaign with Elastigirl at the front of it, in large part due to her being rather more mindful of the old collateral damage thing. They agree, but that does leave Bob back at their swanky new pad, looking after their superpowered children, Sarah Vowell's vanishing, force-projecting Violet, Huckleberry Milner. What a name. You're going to say Huckleberry Hound. (laughs) Huckleberry Hounds. Huckleberry Milner's super-speedy Dash, and the bafflingly named toddler Jack-Jack, who has some sort of every-power cheat code thing going on. (laughs) OP, OP, please nerf. Strap yourself in as we sit through another father struggling to cope with rambunctious kids storyline, which runs every bit as predictably as you'd expect. Meanwhile, Helen finds herself going up against the screenslaver, who has stolen the Riddler's plan from Batman and Robin using telescreens to hypnotise people. Oh, that, that's not a good source. <laughs> no. <laughs> that, the statute of limitations, that is definitely not yet expired. Uh, this leads her into a plot to turn the world irrevocably against supers at just the moment Winston will use to convince leaders to welcome them back to society again, which the family must band together to stop. Now, normally, when I can't think of much to say about a film, I'll just vamp and jazz hands my way up to fill five minutes and call it a day. Uh, But in this instance, I'll keep it to minimum. I rather enjoyed this, and I seem to recall rather enjoying the first film, but I've not thought about The Incredibles once in the 14 years uh, since I saw it, and I'm sure I won't be thinking of this much in the future either. It looks pretty good. I really do like the art style they've used, and continuing from the first film, looks very good. It's often quite funny. It handles its action scenes pretty well. Plot-wise, it's just about serviceable, and it's kind of papered over by the characters, who are charming enough to make up for how predictable it is. Uh, But you really do have to wonder why this well was returned to 14 years after the fact, when it just doesn't seem to have any particular tale to tell. And it's a real step down from Coco, although I suppose most films are. Yes. Uh, so, it's an enjoyable summer release, and it's very entertaining, and of very little other merit, but, well, sometimes that's enough. I'm not moved or touched or otherwise emotionally affected by the piece, but, well, that's enough sometimes. Watch it out of five. It's fine, but it's not a patch on even Ant-Man, so, yeah. I remember when I saw the first Incredibles for the first time, I didn't like it, which mm. put me in about the one... I was going to say one percent. The one person in the world at the time, I think, um, <laughs> and I've grown to like it considerably more since. But I don't know. I wasn't particularly enthused by this, um, this prospect of this. Although I did want to see it, mm. and then I saw this, like the whole sort of stressed father can't cope with the kids thing. I'm like, really? Yeah, that's your story. <laughs> Is it nineteen ninety four? And even then, 1994 was pushing it a bit, I feel, because um, it had been done so many mm. times. Oh, the father's incompetent, can't cope with the kids. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. Um, it's clearly not a tale 14 years in the making. So. No. 
So in the end, I had an opportunity to see this or to see Ant-Man and the Wasp. I think I made the right choice. Hmm. <laughs> I, I'm just underwhelmed by the prospect of this. It's a bit, I mean, I, we've said it before, and um, that we are considerably less enamoured of Pixar films than the world at large seems to be. Mm. But they do do some great films, and Coco was wonderful. Uh, just a truly beautiful film, and I love the Toy yeah. Story films. But I don't know what. They do, after all of their protestations about only doing sequels if they really thought they had a really good story to tell, and I'm like, yeah, I've seen all three car films. Car, <laughs> I, I, yeah. How do you explain Cars 3? And also, compensate me for Car Street, you gets. <laughs> but yes, um, I don't know. I don't think Pixar have quite the same... As I was saying, they don't have the same magic that other people think they do, but I think they do have that magic when they do a really good thing. Um, yeah. I just don't think that they have that sort of magic touch with everything that so many other people think they have. So I, I don't know. I'll catch up with this at some point, I imagine, but I'm just not hugely enthused by the prospect of it. No. Certainly not as a priority. It's it's perfectly fine. I enjoyed watching it, but I will not think of this at all ever again. I'm fairly sure. <laughs> so so that in no way takes us to apostasy, but it is the next film that we're going to be talking about anyway. So in that regard, I suppose it does, but there's no thematic <laughs> link between this. But Drew, you want to tell us about apostasy? Yeah, how do you link um, superhero cartoon sequel to, to Jehovah's Witnesses, Scott? I th- that's a tricky in many one. ways, in many ways, isn't God the ultimate superhero? Is it in many ways? Isn't Mister Incredible Jehovah's Witness? Okay, <laughs> your way makes more sense. Yahweh <laughs> makes a lot of sense. That's a different religion, though. I think. Oh no, it's the same religion, just a different language. <laughs> Tetragrammaton and all that. No equilibrium, though, right? Wasn't it? <laughs> Alex, Molly Wright, an eighteen-year-old suffering from Chekhov's blood disorder, <laughs> lives with her mother Ivana Siobhan Finneran and her older sister Louisa, Sasha Parkinson, near Manchester. The three are all devout, proselytising members for the local Jehovah's Witness community, though I believe proselytising is the only acceptable mode for members. A minor sect of Christianity, probably best known to the wider world as being those people who turn up on your doorstep trying to give you magazines and who refuse blood transfusions. (laughs) In hospital, that is. The blood transfusions. Yeah, not just on the street. Yeah. I'm actually pretty okay with them refusing blood transfusions on your doorstep. Yeah. You weirdo. Why'd you have all of that blood anyway? And why are you trying to force on other people? Well, you want to be a good host. <laughs> they talk constantly of the new system, which God will enact after the rapture. Something. Due to its name, which I am unable to think of as anything other than the next version of Windows for Souls. <laughs> and consider that those not in their church or in the truth, as they put it, as unsaved, but not unsavable, though they tend not to think too highly of them. However, the harshest judgment seems to come for those within their own community who are deemed to have transgressed. One such is Alex's sister Louisa, who becomes pregnant by an outsider, and to teach her an important lesson of... (laughs) something, (laughs) is excommunicated and ostracised by her community. The cruelest part of that is that her family are also forbidden from interacting with Louisa, unless strictly necessary, and being pregnant, malnourished and alone apparently isn't sufficient grounds. <laughs> Lest they be tempted to actually help her, her family also face being punished if they transgress and commit the mortal sin of caring about their relative. This becomes an even harder burden to bear for Ivana after Chekhov's blood disorder goes off at the film's midpoint. 
and the film's viewpoint switches to her. Ivana must struggle with her faith, the commands of the elders and her instincts as both a mother and a human. Louisa also suffers a great deal and begins to rebel against the religion which was imposed upon her. Directed and written by Daniel Cocotagelo, himself a former Jehovah's Witness, apostasy is shot in an almost documentarian style, though the unusual 3 to 2 aspect ratio isn't used even close to as effectively as First Reform's Academy ratio, which we will come to speak about shortly, though the muted colours and lack of flashiness do reflect the austerity of the religion. And the encounters, conversations and situations have a real ring of truth about them. It would be easy to make the elders, all men, naturally, seem particularly villainous, but thanks to the aforementioned feeling of veracity, Goko Tajlo doesn't need to. They, their religion and their utter inflexibility are given enough rope with which to hang themselves without needing mm. to diverge from the mundane. Apostasy is far from perfect, in particular the use of spoken prayer as a way of voicing the character's thoughts, and at the same time as a narration device, is clumsy, inconsistent and not particularly effective, but the three main performances, most notably that of Finnerin as the devout mother facing a seeming lack of reward for her piousness and faith, are great. And I think by choosing to make this story as a drama, the director brings a... a humanity to the story that I think a documentary wouldn't necessarily give it, while still managing to make much that is here seem, alas, real. In the end, it's a bleak but interesting insight into a little-known world, delivered with the authority of one who has been there and is recommended. Will make you furious, though. Yes, yes. Um, I was very much thinking of the Magdalene Laundries by the end of this. It's a, a similar sort of blood-boilingly uh, infuriating uh, work. Marriage is a difficult trick of changing your protagonist halfway through, which not a lot of things can do successfully. And I think this works as pretty well. Because as well as a, you could, I think, because it's yeah, yeah that's that's strange to change the viewpoint at the midpoint. Like, uh, yeah, that's, that's a hard one to pull off. I'm not convinced it does it, but um, I was yeah, engaged uh, enough that I kept I, watching. I like I like the idea because it was a character that was almost going towards not villainy, but you know she was clearly not even remotely sympathetic up until that point, and it's trying to make it a bit more sympathetic as you as the the mother goes through the struggles. But yeah, I think I liked it. It's as as an atheist, then all this religion's crazy to me. It's just degrees, um, but this is the craziest one of them. This is one of the crazier ones. Um, yeah, some really baffling beliefs and strange structures. And I think it's it's good that it's not wildly sensationalizing anything. As you say, it's taken a bit more almost documentarian kind of approach to it, uh, and that really does help with the impact of it and show just how weird it is and infuriating some actions are but at the same time it's not making them out as pantomime villains i mean it's like these people do genuinely believe that this is how is best to save people's souls and it's hard to be too upset with people for that basis if you know what i mean they're not they're not um out and out evil or have any kind of lust for power or anything or at least it doesn't seem to be coming across as, as the way this is shown it's just that their chosen methods for salvation are really strange yeah, that, that's absolutely the key and it's- yeah. So I said, but they get given the rope to hang themselves because these people they don't feel it's something along the lines of like Hannah Arendt's idea. I mean, obviously, it's not as bad as Nazism, but Hannah Arendt's idea of the mundanity of evil that these people believe that they're helping someone like this, but, but somehow that detaches them from humanity. Yeah, and yeah, they're not. It'd be so easy just to make them genuinely evil people 
uh, and so many stories about religion have that. Whereas, for instance, in the Madeline laundries, some of the people there were, was along the lines of Mandani TV, but some of them were like Geraldine McCune's character, mm-hmm. just straight out evil. This doesn't have that, and it just it feels it does feel so real, and yeah, they just believe that they're helping. Mm. Um, and I've now forgotten the point I wanted to be when I started. <laughs> so I'll let you continue and maybe it'll come back to me. I would, but I'm not altogether sure there's much more that I want to say about apostasy. Yeah, I, I was, I wouldn't say I was entertained by it. It's uh, not the sort it's, of film that's out It's not an entertaining film, but no. No, but it's, uh, it, it's not entertaining or enjoyable yet. Still, it's, it's worth watching. Um, I, I was quite affected by it. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, it was an interesting look into this uh well, sect, I suppose you'd say, that I don't didn't really know anything about. It's disturbing to see what's actually going on inside it, of course. So, but, so it's, uh, but nonetheless, it's a it's a film that's well worth tracking down. Uh, yeah, well, recommend. Well, I would certainly recommend it. It's worth watching. Um, I mean, films about religion tend to make my blood boil from the beginning. And what I thought was quite notable while I was watching this is that for a lot of it, I didn't feel that. I was more just interested, and it really is the approach that Gokotajlo is taking with this, um, mm-hmm. that this feels like this is how these people would operate. I mean, operate sounds like they've got like a really sinister motive, and I, I think that's not accurate. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is what they believe, uh, and I may think the belief is extremely foolish, misguided, but they believe it, so they think they're doing good, but yes, I say it, so it detaches them from like being kind and caring human when yes. people are suffering because of what they're doing. And so, surprisingly for a film about religion, for most of it, I was quite calm. And it's actually only towards the end of the film when you see the real consequences of these actions and actually the way the mother was acting yeah. that my anger began to build. The other thing, though, is that did make me a bit angry, that's what always bothers me, is just that, do you know what? I mean, I can even understand... The idea of not wanting a blood transfusion. As foolish as I find that, because people want to to live, right? Mm. But if you believe that there's like your. They don't. For Contest Film, anyway, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in a soul in the way that other religions might. Um, that the, the actual corporeal body is the thing. Um, I guess this isn't the place of time to get into that. But that. If your body is the, the instrument or the design of God, and if you're taking a part of somebody else's body, that makes it, I don't know, impure, incomplete or something. Hmm. I can understand that. that. That makes sense that why you would believe that. So therefore you wouldn't want something like a blood transfusion. But at the same point, anything that makes children suffer and potentially leads to the death of children, yeah, which is what the beginning of the film is about, that Alex had had a um, blood transfusion and was basically always made to feel unclean or impure as a result of that, despite the fact it saved her life. And otherwise she would have died as a child. Mm. Uh, and that makes me so angry. That and the, the company thing. Like, you know, this is just a general religion thing. And I know we're getting away from the topic of this, so this will be brief, but the idea that I don't think children should be anywhere near religion. If adults believe these things and want to practice religion, that's up to them. But I just don't think any children should be subjected to anything religious, even vaguely, beyond an education that here is what religion is, and these people believe these things. Um, yeah. Because children don't have the critical faculties for that. But yes, otherwise, I'm going to end up down a massive rabbit hole if I start on this. Um, <laughs> I would say that it approaches it in quite a sensitive and 
not particularly judgmental way this film I think at least it lets what feels like a real situation tell you all you need to and then you can make your own judgment rather than the film doing it itself does that make sense yeah yeah um so it's really interesting that point of view and Jehovah's Witnesses really all I know about or knew about Jehovah's Witnesses before this I, I knew they didn't believe in blood transfusions and things so and if they don't believe in blood transfusions obviously not transplants etc but also it's like you know Jehovah's Witnesses are largely just the butt of jokes you know it's mm. like they're the people that come to the door and want to speak to you so you hide from them you hide when Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door because they, they'll talk to you and you don't want to do that it's that sort of joke I think um Mormons have sometimes um, thought of similarly because they do the same sort of door-to-door thing. Mm. But beyond that, I didn't know much about them. So this is interesting just to, to to learn a bit more about a different thing. And it just interesting, different. I've not seen a film quite like this. approaches religion in quite this way, I don't think. Not that I watched a great many of them for reasons <laughs> that are probably obvious when the Ranite almost went on and sort of did. Um, <laughs> but it's... Uh, yeah, it's not it's not entertaining in any way, but it's rewarding um, and definitely worth checking out if you can get a hold of it. Yes, very much. So we are, again, unusual for us because we're, we're both largely on the same page with this, but we've got not one but two religious films in in our episode today, Scott. So we move on to the second of those with Paul Schrader's First Reformed. Yes, written and directed by Paul Schrader, who was, was the writer behind Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. First Reformed sees Ethan Hawke slip on the dog collar of Reverend Ernst Toller of the titular First Reformed Church, now 250 years old and more of a tourist attraction than a working church. Nonetheless, there's a small flock to tend to, and he's called on to help Amanda Seyfried's Mary deal with her radical environmentalist husband, Philip Ettinger's Michael he believes it's a mistake to bring a child into a world on the brink of ecological collapse and wants Mary to get an abortion, which I understand there's some religious resistance to. While counselling Michael, Toller reveals some of the heartache that's been brought into his life, his son being killed in the limited police actions in Iraq, and this may perhaps explain Toller's affinity for the bottle, and also his journal entries that attempt to rationalise his thoughts. Things take a dark turn from an already fairly dark grey state, <laughs> When Michael kills himself, and in cleaning up his stuff, Mary finds not just a sack of material calling for eco-warriors to arms, but the materials to construct a suicide vest. Toller's mission then becomes to comfort Mary while also dealing with the preparations for the upcoming church anniversary celebrations and his own rapidly failing health. There's perhaps little value in recounting much more of the events, but as time goes on, Toller's mental state grows increasingly fragile, leading to some quite extreme places by the end of the film. There's certainly more than a hint of Taxi Driver going on, as a character study of a man pushed out to the extremes by personal circumstance. It is, however, rather less satisfying by the time you get to the end of it. Um, none of that's Ethan Hawke's fault, who puts in a great performance, and the supporting actors do well enough with what they're given. But there's a certain sense that First Reformed doesn't know quite what its central thrust is, and keeps diving off down different rabbit holes that don't really go anywhere in the grand scheme of things, either the eco-messaging or the implication of corruption in the church. And when it eventually swings back to focusing on the character study part of it, I don't buy that it's examined him anywhere near well enough to drop this sort of an ending on us. So questions remain about the last 10 minutes then, and also about the laughably ropey effects shot that I understand is meant to be metaphorical, but it's actually ridiculous. I wondered if you were going to mention it. It is the dodgiest <laughs> effect shot I've seen in 
a yes. long, long time. Yes, I know this doesn't have a huge budget, but still. <laughs> yeah, but you know those, you could just be the one in the in the Trocadero in London. But in the 1990s, used to be these places you go to have your own sort of like music video made and had like really mm. dodgy green screen effects behind you. Yeah. It looks like that. Yes, it's absolutely terrible. <laughs> but yeah, for the bulk of it, it's an intriguing character study and it's very well played by Ethan Hawke as he so often does. Uh, so it fluffs the landing a bit, which means I can't be overly enthusiastic about the recommendation, but I do recommend it. Um, I did enjoy it for, for what it was. I say it's Dending pushes credibility quite a lot. But up until that point, I'd really been quite intrigued by it um, and quite liked the character. So yes, it is worth watching, but yes, unfortunately, it does, doesn't quite stick the landing. I wanted to like this more than I did, I think. I still liked it mm. quite a bit. I, I thought Ethan Hawke was great. Uh, yes. We're both quite big fans of Ethan Hawke, Scott, aren't we? Absolutely, yes. But it's, yeah, that ending, I just don't think it earned it. Um, no, it really doesn't. I can understand them being pushed a little bit mentally, but it, it doesn't explain or show anything like enough to get to this sort of ending. It's, it's out of nowhere, really. Well, I don't know, you say something of nowhere. It's like, I kind of had for a good half of the film feeling that that's where it was going to go. But even while waiting for it, it didn't earn it. Yeah, I mean, that part is very much Chekhov's exploding uh, vest, but th- there's other parts of it as well. Like, it's like Chekhov's barbed wire? Really? <laughs> okay, fair enough. But yeah, it's just weird. I don't, I, I, it didn't, you know, like you say, it just didn't earn it. Another thing, I, mean, I really loved the way it looked. That, yeah. the, the Academy ratio that it's shot in is... The framing of that actually really works. It was very deliberately chosen. You could yes. like, accidentally choose that, of course. But yeah. um, and Paul Schrader has been saying that you know it's like he wanted to just you know really focus on the characters and yeah. to, to cut anything else out, and it, it, it really works. Mm. Um, it's a really really attractively shot film, and the framing works really well. And so you're always focusing on just these things in the center frame, and it works so well. Kind of undermined by some of the music choices, though. Mm. And I just, I, I kind of, I got the general idea of what it was trying to say, I think. But, like, it's, I mean, it start the very first shot of the film, you see this really, like, low-angle shot of this church and it approaches it and there's all this kind of, it's like horror film music. And it's, like, kind of foreboding and not quite creepy, but ominous. And it's mo- this slow zooming in the church from a low angle. I'm like, okay, right, I, I get that. And then later on, that type of music recurs. Like, yeah, it's not, no, you're, you're not mm. selling that. There's mm. no, it, it doesn't match. Like the sort of very doom-laden bits of music over the top of scenes of like environmental disaster and stuff. You know, like, actually, that would probably work better without music. And certainly not with this music. It doesn't match. Yeah. And it, it was kind of frustrating because I found that it was undercutting itself quite regularly it's like undermining its own message or mm. not that it's convinced it knew what its message was I don't know, it's it's a frustrating film because there was so much to like in it um, yeah. although that that special effects scene, well I say special effects um, <laughs> special effects, you know <laughs> but it's uh, it's so terrible it's so <laughs> terrible that I feel like it's got to be deliberate, right? Because it takes you out of the film completely. It looks like nothing else in the film. And it's so mid-90s TV quality that it's... I don't know, I can't get over that. It's like, if it is deliberate, 
then I, I'm working. Why is it deliberate? And if it's not deliberate, yes. like, how do you excuse <laughs> such a piss poor um, effect shot? Yeah, uh, it didn't really add anything anyway. I don't, I don't, I don't see why it would need to be there. Even if it had been executed perfectly, it still wouldn't have added anything to it. Yeah, because um, that um, the scene between the two characters there would have worked. Well, it would have worked better without it, but it certainly yes. would have worked just fine without it, or even if the, the effects were better or something. What what does this add? And it it looked so different from the rest of the film, which was so carefully and beautifully composed. I mean, it's still worth watching. Um, it's worth watching simply for how it looks, apart from anything else, apart from that scene, obviously. Uh, <laughs> and for Ethan Hawke's performance. It's mm. just... Uh, and Cedric the Entertainer, in his first credited role as not Cedric the Entertainer, but his real name. <laughs> that was quite okay. unusual. Um, yeah. I'm not sure he had an awful lot to do in that film, right enough, but... You know, it feels like part of the film's missing. Yeah. It's like there's a real missing somewhere in the last third... Yeah, that that kind of ties it all together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think we're on the same page with this. It's it's worth. There's enough good in here to make it worth watching. But again, it's it's hard to be hugely enthusiastic about recommending it. But it's worth sticking on your list and getting to it at some point. So I guess that will take us in a way that I can really cleverly link with Zama. So then, Zama drew. <laughs> Well, the the church was formed in 1767 and Sama takes place in about 1787, so there's that, I don't know, I'm stretching. (laughs) But Sama, yes. Sama, based on Antonio di Benedetti's 1956 novel of the same name. Interestingly, the book wasn't even translated into English until just two years ago, 60 years after its first publication in Argentina but was immediately proclaimed a neglected South American masterpiece by US critics. Tells the story of Don Diego de Zama, a minor functionary of the Spanish crown living in Paraguay at the end of the 18th century in the waning days of the Spanish Empire. Zama, a superb Daniel Jiménez Cacho, a corregidor, or chief magistrate, is, to put it mildly, stuck in a rut. A thousand miles from his family in Buenos Aires, Poor, bored and lonely, he is desperate to get a transfer to this provincial backwater. Sleeping with members of the indigenous population, and fathering a child, while pathetically lusting after the unobtainable, to him, Luciana Piñares de Luenga, Lola Duenas, one of the Peninsulares, that's Spanish-born whites living in the Americas who talked the casta system, that he tries to pass himself off as being despite being a criollo and therefore looked down upon as being lesser by the peninsulares. As his various attempts to get transferred fail and governors come and go, Thama becomes more pathetic, more desperate and more lost. After years eventually signing up for a dangerous mission to bring a notorious outlaw to justice. Having very much looked forward to seeing this, I was somewhat disappointed. Yes! Yes! I thought it was just me! Everyone else loves this so much. Existential works are certainly not my favourite thing, though I want to push myself more in that regard. And the lack of a sense of place, while deliberate, meant that I never quite felt settled while watching this. Thama himself is a pitiful, but not pitiable figure. A rather sad, pathetic and effectual man who, for all of his belief that the world is out to get him, has brought most of his misfortune on himself. 
But Thama as a whole is a metaphor for colonialism, racism and slavery, as well as being a treatise on alienation, loneliness, solitude and bureaucracy, amongst other things. Some metaphors are obvious, some less so. The story of the fish rejecting the water recounted by the prisoner at the beginning is very on the nose for the protagonist. And like Eric on the Magic Lantern said, I too thought the fish shown were bottom-feeding catfish. But then again, sometimes a fish is just a fish and not a metaphor. But who knows? (laughs) But much here is ambiguous or buried. It's layers upon layers is what I'm saying. At one point, a curious llama wanders through a scene behind Sama. But is it a llama? Perhaps it's an alpaca? Or maybe, just maybe, it's the closely related Vicuña, which shares its name with Vicuña Porto, Matthias Nashagal, the bogeyman bandit whose legend haunts the film and the protagonist. The dread pirate Robertson. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's just absurd and out of place, like Sam himself. Or perhaps it's just there as comic relief, as the film has more than a few such moments of what could be, although I don't think is but also do think is, but also not, um, humorous joke. I found the music uh, hinting towards comedy. Yes, so. that's uh, exactly where I'm going with this, but yeah. my next sentence, the sentence yeah. finishes, yes. So, it's also think is, but also think is not, but also isn't, and possibly is, humorous juxtaposition, <laughs> and some oddly jaunty music in portions. It's an incredibly dense film, and it's simply not possible to take it all, or even a good proportion of it, in on a first viewing. So I think I will return to this in a while so I can fully unpack the metaphors and imagery. Because it's very much the sort of film that's going to reward repeat reviewing, though some knowledge of the Spanish Empire is really going to help, for which I direct you towards Season 5 of Mike Duncan's Excellent Revolutions podcast. Uh, For anyone who already likes Lucretia Martel's work, then this is a no-brainer. Though if you're not familiar, then... I honestly don't know whether this is the best entry point or you'd be better off beginning with La Cienega or La Mujer Sin Cabeza, or The Headless Woman. But if you're looking for something rewarding and indifferent you can get your cinephilic fangs into, then it's cautiously recommended. Um, although I say I was expecting or hoping to like it a great deal more. Just set your expectations accordingly and be prepared to work for it. Hmm. It's not casual viewing, definitely. I've not seen any of Lucretia Martel's uh, other work, and on this basis, certainly not a place to start. Uh, I kind of bounced off the look. I'll, I'll give it this. It's an absolutely lovely-looking film. Um, spectacular in locations, uh, lots of lovely use of colour. Yeah, absolutely great in that regard. Uh, the central performance is fantastic. Uh, really good uh, central turn. Uh, unfortunately, the character is he's doing so well at playing a prick that <laughs> I, I just... Couldn't really get into it, and yeah, that's a metaphor for colonialism. I mean, I think you, I think we could stand seeing a few more just very obvious works about colonialism first before we get to this. It's densely layered, I suppose, but it's not something that I can actually be bothered to unpick. Um, it reminded me a lot of Mother, actually, in this regard. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's a lot of stuff that I just don't care about. And I'm never going to come back to. So um, in that regard, it's a fortunately a bit of a failure for me. I was. Uh, I suppose a more line with it. I suspect most audiences who sat in front of this would not be particularly uh, open to it. It does require a, a far bit more um, indulgence than most films these days do, and I'm not entirely sure it was rewarded by anything. I gave it a, I gave it a fair go, uh, but unfortunately, the central character is just too horrible to care about 
in the slightest. He's just a pathetic, sad sack of a man, and it's not in any way interesting watching anything that he does. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's just quite annoying <laughs> watching him bumble through life, and uh, I didn't really care for any of it. Uh, no, no thank you. <laughs> yeah, I had that problem with the character too, that yeah, Don Diego de Thama is he's, yeah, he's just an arsehole, basically. Um, mm. Which so I was bearing in mind throughout because I knew a little bit about the book that it was like kind of metaphorical and so which point I was thinking okay I sort of accept that character a bit but it wasn't in any way likeable and it's so that's a real stumbling block to get invested in the character I could let it get away with not being likeable if he was in some way interesting mm. but he isn't uh, I couldn't find any hook to get into any aspect of his character at all he's just a worthless person. and I know that's the point but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't help. Necessarily watchable, <laughs> yes. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, yeah. If it was actually a despicable person, it would be a lot easier to actually get into it because you'd actually root for for something bad happening to him, I suppose. But this is just he's just a non-entity, and it's difficult to get involved. Really, I don't know. It's definitely something I'm going to watch again, and I'm hoping to get more out of it the next time. Hmm. Yeah, I hoped for more. Still, it's um, if you wanted to find something that you could really unpick, like really dense to get into it's a good one it's it's not a casual viewing experience though yeah you know for even since I'm being bombastic about it I actually didn't hate it when I was watching it but it, it does enough visually to keep me entertained I suppose there was enough going on I guess that it didn't make me want to turn off you know it was even as someone who doesn't really have a lot of affinity for this kind of thing uh, it was doing enough to kind of drag me along I wasn't particularly enjoying it but uh, it, it wasn't making me not like it enough to turn it off completely. Um, so, uh, has that going for it as a really mild recommendation? It's not bad enough for to make me want to turn it off. Hmm. Yeah. Um, the reason this was in my mind recently, I mean, because our, uh, you know, seven months after it was published, because that, you know, why why read things when they're current? But uh, I was recently reading a list of films with the best. I think it was in the BFI. Uh, films of the best cinematography of last year and mm. this was listed on there and I thought, oh Lucretia Martel and, like, and there was a couple of screenshots on it, that looks really nice yeah. and and it does there, there are some points oh, yes. where it really looks beautiful there were just a few moments in this where it, there was something just so striking with the visuals it was, it was almost aching it was just, there's a scene towards the end where um, Sama's in a boat sort of lying still and then you see the, the very sharp edge of the boat then there's this incredibly green like pond weed or something and hmm. um, the side of the boat and there's, there's something about that that the composition of that scene and the colours and it's just, it just incredibly beautiful but then I'm like at the same time I'm sort of having thoughts like yeah but I don't care about this guy over here <laughs> yeah, there's a very much a film where the scenery's saturation is all the way up and the main character's saturation is all the way down yes <laughs> Also, not a recommendation for you, a guarded recommendation for me for particular purposes, I guess, more than anything else. But <laughs> yes. Largely a disappointment for me because I had been looking forward to it so much more. But yeah, it's still something you could talk about, I think, mm-hmm. in, sort of in cinephilic terms. Not the sort of thing you're going to have a casual conversation down the pub about, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose it depends on the pub you go to. <laughs> We've had our say in these films. Uh, is it time to see what other people have said to us, Scott? Yes. So, starting off just to follow on, that's at Lantern Cast, the Magic Lantern podcast, of course, who 
just did an episode on Zama a couple of weeks back. Uh, Zama was their most anticipated film of the year and it did not disappoint. A haunted film in Matthias Nachtergalli is an impishly perverse a villain as I've seen. I don't get that in the slightest. Nope. No, I, <laughs> I just didn't think he was in the film enough. Um, no. Cole there has chosen the word impishly very deliberately because he is devil-like he's, when he's coated in the red paint more than mm. anybody else's at that scene. But I just, I didn't find that character particularly impactful or interesting. Mm. Like pretty much everybody in the film, actually, character-wise. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a pity. We also had some feedback from a perpetual dumb machine at Blake Wright, one of the hosts of the I Am The Host podcast. It Ant-Man 2 did for me what Ant-Man 1 did, which was basically be fun and not particularly demanding. Incredibles 2, well, they say superheroes are inherently fascistic, but this was really wearing it on its sleeve for kids' fair. Um, <laughs> so he might do an I Am The Host um, episode on it because he had thoughts. <laughs> As a movie, Incredibles 2 had about five scenes that I remember. The rest sloughed off my brain like mud off of a duck, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> mud off of a duck is that a Missouri expression Blake <laughs> just, just <laughs> deliberately changing the water of a duck's back thing for the scope if it, I'm sorry I'm not getting your meaning here but muddy ducks maybe okay uh, not a terrible ratio for an action film I suppose but the dad out of his element being a caretaker plot felt super dated mm-hmm. yeah, then again I have no kids so maybe but I don't know it's, Yeah, we'll largely agree with all that yeah, it's, uh, it is a bit dated in its outlook yeah so that takes us to the end of this podcast, and hasn't it just been a ride? Uh, we'll be back again with you soon enough, uh, but until that time, take care of yourself and each other. I bid you adieu uh, from my position here as the official Scott Morris of the podcast, and I'm sure Drew Tamdale will do the same. In my position as the official Scott Morris of the podcast, there's only one of them. Uh, you could be the unofficial one if you like. Okay. Um, <laughs> can I be the deputy Scott Morris of the podcast? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um... So in, in that um, underwhelming role, bye bye. <laughs> underwhelming understudies. Mm-hmm.